From a modest two-story residential building at 450 Swan Street in Richmond, Dr. Sam Huppert has turned medical group ProMedicus into a global multi-billion dollar company. After years of toil and a low point in 2011, the company's shares have rocketed 30,000% over the last decade. It is now worth $6 billion. Along the way, Huppert and his business partner, Anthony Hall, have both become billionaires. Although you would hardly know given Dr. Sam has never lost his delightful bedside manner. ProMedicus was formed 38 years ago in 1983 when Huppert, a practicing medical doctor, saw an opportunity to exploit new technologies in the medical field. This decision saw Huppert take ProMedicus into the medical imaging field, eventually listing on the Australian Stock Exchange in 2000. In 2005, ProMedicus spread its wings and entered a partnership with global imaging group Agfa to take a range of software products global. In 2007, Huppert stepped aside as CEO of the company, believing there were better people suited to growing the international facing business. Unfortunately, the Agfa partnership faltered and by 2010, he was back in charge. Undeterred by the first offshore stumble, Huppert moved forward managing to buy a US company called Visage Imaging. Visage had developed compression technology that allowed doctors to view high-resolution medical images from any device. Identifying the limitless opportunity, the ProMedicus team started to win contracts in the US and they haven't stopped since. I first met Sam soon after ProMedicus listed on the ASX in 2000. He has always been more than willing to give up his time to explain his business. Welcome, Sam. What's it like being an overnight success? I wish it were, but as you said, we've been going 38 years and I think, look, we had a, a good patch around the 2000s and then um, we had a little bit of a stumble in around 2008, 2009, but we were able to regroup and take a business that was largely Australian focused and make it a lot more global. You know, with the Visage acquisition, we all of a sudden went from an office in Melbourne, Australia to having an office in Melbourne, Australia, our largest office in Berlin in Germany and a sales and marketing arm in the US. So things changed pretty rapidly, but thankfully we were able to, you know, rejig not only the organization, but the product set. And as you mentioned, from about 2012 onwards, the US has become our main market. And I think it's, you know, between 80 and 85% of our revenue and growing simply because it's, you know, the biggest market and growing at the fastest rate. Now, I'll come back to Visage. Let's go back with you. It's interesting because you're a doctor, a medical doctor, but you've found yourself as a businessman, the highly successful one. Can we go back and just explore a little bit of your early life and what, what was discussed around the breakfast table or the dinner table? Was there business being discussed or were your family in the medical profession? Just give us a bit of a colour of what your parents did and what the discussion was about generally. Look, well, both parents emigrated from Europe after the war, and my father was always a businessman. So back in Europe, he was, the war disrupted that, and then when he came out here, he was always in business. So business was a natural part of our family history. Even though my parents were educated in Europe, clearly the continuing education here in Australia in those days was difficult. So business was the main thing, and I always grew up. I used to go with my father on Saturdays to his business. He was in textiles, as a lot of European immigrants were. And so I, I sort of learned the ropes a little bit, always was fascinated by it. And even at uh, when I was in medical school, I was always keen. It was a great immigrant story where mum and dad have come along, worked a small business successful and made sure their kids got the best education. Yeah, look, the two of us, I have an older sister who's 20 months older than me. And certainly when coming from war to Europe, education was always front 
front and centre of my parents' thought process. So they were very keen that both of us not only went to school but to university. My sister's a, you know, an accomplished maths teacher. I'd always, from an early age, wanted to do medicine. Uh, my father tells me it was looking at you know, pictures of anatomy in the old Encyclopedia Britannica. So clearly one of the happiest days in their life is when they found out I got accepted into medical school after VCE and um, education was always really important for them. So were you always good at school or was it a grind? If you, if you thought you could do medicine, it's not easy to achieve. You've got to get some outstanding results to make that leap straight from school. I, was, I wasn't a genius and I wasn't a plotter. I was somewhere in between. If I had my time again, I'd most probably study more to be, <laughs> if I had to be frank. But certainly, look, I got in and, um, you know, look, I, I focused when I needed to. I, I didn't duck the year by any means and I didn't come to the bottom. I was somewhere in between. But look, I was always focused on getting the degree and practicing. But even in medical school, I'd started my own business. You know, so I had experience in, in, in business at a small level anyway at, at an early age. So I was always had this thing in the back of my mind that I would always want to A, work for myself and B, do something in business. But, um, you know, could I combine it with medicine? And can you give us some colour around that business at university? Yeah, I, I used to have uh, quite a successful professional photography business. I specialised in fashion and photographing uh, children. And at one stage, I took a year off and people flew me all over Australia to, you know, do bespoke work for their large murals of children and other bits and pieces. So it actually became a, quite a sizable business for, for a part-time student. I had other photographers working for me. And that's when I learned some of the basic, you know, P&L responsibilities and all of that sort of stuff that I think held us in good stead when we started ProMedicus. You were into imaging all the way back then, just different type of imaging. I didn't see the connection between the two. It was more, you know, I, I like the artistic side of photography and a bit of the technical side. And I think it, it all started when I was meant to be going skiing when I was about 12 and I had an issue with my knee. It was a growth plate issue that was fairly common in teenage boys and I couldn't go. And my father bought me this old, very rudimentary and larger, like a, almost like a bulb on a stick. And that, that piqued my interest. And, um, you know, I started developing my own black and white like people did in those days. And then one thing led to another. So, but I never imagined I would take that photographic skill and, and use it in, in business. But, you know, certainly we did, particularly in the early days when we started. And how long was the medical degree when you did it? You're at Monash. You took a year off, you said. So, is that six yep. or seven years in total with a year off? I started medical school straight from school. That wasn't unusual. And it was six years straight, three years at Monash, then fourth year onwards in the hospitals. All our lectures were at the Alfred. So we were a close cohort. The year off was actually once I'd done my residency and I took a year off medicine before I started my own practice after that. And so you, you walk out of university, you go and work for yourself straight away? No, I did a year residency. I went to Panch Preston Northcote Hospital, which is now a northern hospital. It used to be in Preston. And that was an unbelievable year clinically because it was just such a busy hospital. It was the first hospital off the Hume Highway. So every major accident would come through and it was incredibly good training. And then after that year where I then was qualified, I could go out and start my own practice. It's very different today. You have to do additional courses, but then there weren't any additional courses for GPs. Um, I took a year off and then after that, I worked as a locum for someone and then through him found a greenfield site in Elizabeth Street, Coburg, just put out the shingle and started the practice. 
did the patients walk in or was it nerve-wracking? Yeah, look, you know, slowly there wasn't a a doctor really in that area. It was a a really nice mix of patients, you know, a lot of Italian families, there were some Australian families and it was all very local, you know. It was quite a small street. It's now, you know, there's, there's a Woolworths village across the road because the old Kodak estate has been redeveloped. That was right next to me. So I had a good, you know, quite a good following and built quite nicely and then I was just in a shop front and the house next door or masonette next door came up for sale and I bought that and the patients came and helped me move my desks and everything into <laughs> it. So it was like a different world to what it is today, to be honest. But uh, look, I was there for, for a number of years and, and that office became the first Prometicus offices. We used my surgery for a few years before we then moved out to Fitzroy and then subsequently where you find us now in Richmond. And were you a good doctor? In the sense of were you talented at what you did? That's an interesting question. Was I the most academic doctor? No. Did, did I have a good patient rapport? I think I did. So I had a pretty loyal following of patients, and I'd like to think I didn't make too many mistakes if I knew I was, at, you know, in those days, if there was something a little unusual, I would usually refer them on. There were a good group of specialists at uh, what was then John F- well, Sacred Heart Hospital, John Faulkner, or into the Royal Melbourne. So I wasn't too far from that, but no, I didn't have any mishaps in, on my watch that I knew of. So <laughs> I suppose, yeah, and the patients seemed to be quite good. He seemed to be loyal. So like I said, I don't know if I was the best, but I wouldn't say I was the worst either. But you sounded like you enjoyed it, but correct me if I'm wrong, you were only there for three or four years before you started your own business again in the technology area. I'm not sure whether that was ProMedicus in 83 or it was, close, it was named something else, but you didn't stay a GP for a long stint. It wasn't that I wasn't enjoying it. What, what happened is I met Anthony at a few years earlier at a wine tasting. It was almost like a you know, a scene from that movie Sideways, the two of us were called in to taste a, a range of Burgundies by an importer and we had, didn't even know each other and we we're sitting across the table and then eventually after a few minutes of tasting and spitting out wine, we asked each other some questions and he was then the president of the Yarra Valley Wine and Food Society and he seconded me to become a member of that. So Anthony worked as an analyst programmer and had come out of La Trobe University and in those days they used punch cards or paper tape readers. And he, you know, it was only years later where one day I, you know, I had this idea that I knew nothing about computing and all the IBM PC wasn't uh, released or invented yet. And all computers were like these little hobby kits. And I thought, look, this is going to be the new form of literacy. So I'm, I'm not, I wasn't a tech head. I didn't know anything about the bits and the parts. I just thought I need to know something about it. Anthony's in the industry. I'll speak to him. And long story short, when I first rang him with this idea, he thought I'd gone crazy. And in retrospect, he most probably was right. I didn't know what I was talking about. I just said, look, doctors need computers. You're a programmer. I'm a doctor. It's going to be the future. What do you think? And after a bit of convincing, he finally agreed. And then we set, up, set about you know, trying to assess the market and what would doctors really want and they'd only want to go with you know, brand name hardware and you know, started developing the idea. And then we decided we needed to find out how, how do we get the hardware, you know. So we applied to become a hardware reseller for a, what was then the second largest computer company in the world, Digital Equipment Corp or DEC. They were second to IBM and after a whole lot of toing and froing and writing business plans and there was someone in DEC that believed in us. He, he used to sell electrocardiology equipment. So he knew, he, he dealt with doctors 
and he backed us and we became a dealer. The Anthony you're talking about is Anthony Hall, who's your business partner to this day and the other major shareholder in Promedicus. Just told you up there, what made you think that computers were the future or this was going to be the literacy we use going forward to use your term? Oh, look, I I don't think there – I just looked at it and I thought I know nothing about it and people are going to start using these things. And originally most of the use was around either basic programs or – it then morphed into accounting. A lot of, you know, early programs were designed to do sort of more, you know, accounting type functions. And at that stage, doctors, you know, literally had their accounts in a, in a shoebox. And I thought, hmm, something's going to change here. And eventually this is how they're going to do it. So our, our first move into computing in, in health was all around the business management site, well, the billing, really. And and that's where we started. And clinical records didn't come till much, much later because the computers weren't sophisticated enough. And so you you had the hardware business, you did the deal with the computing company, then you had to go out and sell. So did you split your roles there? Was Anthony a good salesperson or was that left to you? How How did you divvy up the work? Well, there was one big step in between. That was to actually write the program. And, and it was huge. And, you know, I thought programming just twiddle a few lines and just write a bit of code and it all happens, but clearly not. And to do that, it was really, really expensive because A, you needed a computer to do the programming on. And B, a lot of the programming languages and compilers that you used to buy in those days were all designed for big enterprises like banks. So you could spend in those days a million dollars just setting up a development environment. Whereas today you just go and cloud in the net and, you know, a lot of it's, you know, open source. You, 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 there's no such barrier. So what happened was after we became a, a dealer for DEC, they had won a very large um, tender with the New South Wales government for their hospitals and government health. And like a lot of organisations, they saw the market as a, as, as a shape pyramid with, a, you know, big hospitals on top and all these GPs and specialists on the bottom of the pyramid, and they didn't have a solution for that. So after about oh, six or eight months of negotiation, we finally made a deal where they provided all of that development environment and using their mainframe in Box Hill and everything, where we didn't have to pay for it because how are we going to get a, you know pretty much a million dollars out of the gate even with our own earnings? So that was really fundamental in setting us up. We even called the product Deck Medicus before ProMedicus, basically we committed to selling it on on the digital platform or the deck platform through, you know, so using their hardware and going out to the market. So about 18 months later, or maybe a bit less, we had the product. There was a big GP conference at Mooney Valley Racecourse, believe it or not. That's where we debuted the product and, you know, the rest is history. But it allowed us to fund the development um ourselves without having to go out and so we never had any uh, test and Anthony did gave up his day job worked on programming full-time I still worked in medicine plus you know started to do the pre-sales and everything else and then once we were at that uh, conference I split my time between medical practice and the business and then it was just getting impossible I was always running late for one or the other and then decided much to my parents dismay that I would go full-time into the computer business with the thought that, look, if it didn't work, I could always go back to being a doctor. Anthony was in charge of writing that code. You were in charge of distributing, selling it to potential clients. 
Yeah, so my original role was to specify what, what a practice needed because I knew I, I was a practitioner. So it was to help define the spec. And I think we had pretty well delineated roles. Anthony was on the whole technical side. He, he knew people, ex Trobe, that would work for us after hours. And, you know, it's not like today there was no internet. So he would go around to everybody's place with a big floppy disk and give them the latest updates to every night to work off. It was a very different world back then. But uh, so he was technical and I did all the business marketing side. And then, as I said, once we got too busy, we moved from uh, my practice in Coburg to an office, a rented office in Johnson Street, Fitzroy, close to Brunswick Street. And um, then we hired our first staff member and then slowly built from there. And did you start building out the product list, did you? Because you said you started on billing. That's where it all began. And then you obviously started to build out the product list to form ProMedicus. Yeah. Originally, the computers were like character cell. They just showed green text or white text or whatever color you bought, but they didn't show graphics. So most of it was really all around the billing side. And in Australia, the billing is in medicine is quite convoluted, you know, and it's very, um, very bespoke to Australia, how you get Medicare rebates and, you know, workers' compensation. And it's very localized to our market. So a general accounting program, which a lot of people sort of tried to sell in those days, just really didn't work. So pretty much all of our work was uh, around billing. And we did a lot of general specialist surgeons, a lot of plastic surgeons, and got into radiology about two, three years out. And the reason for that is radiologists used to have multiple receptionists at their front desks, and often they'd have multiple clinics so that the actual size of the deal was much, much bigger than, let's say, a specialist that had one secretary and they would use, you know, the computer for word processing rather than typewriter and uh, things like that. So it was only once you started to get more sophisticated graphics that you could do things like, you know, the scheduling and all the other bits that we that we now do. It's a more holistic suite. But back then, you know, computer power just wouldn't allow it. So it was pretty much billing for the first I'd say, you know, at least 10 years plus, and then we then morphed into a broader suite of product, but really all around practice management. And was it always a profitable enterprise outside that initial development costs that you found a solution to by using the computing company? Was it always profitable post that? Yeah. So Anthony and I funded it, you know, by ourselves. Yes, it was always profitable and never had any debt. Which, which is a great sign for a business. Yeah, very different to today, you know, where you had VC funding and those sorts of things weren't really around. And, you know, we were both very conservative financially. And so for us, we just thought that's the way to do it. And there really weren't many options other than going to the bank and firstly selling your house or mortgaging your house to get a business loan. But, you know, today it's very different. And if you were doing the same today, would you have fast-tracked it or was it the fact that the technology wasn't there to do what you want to do or or could you have done it a lot quicker with external funding? I think, look, doing it the way we did it's more in our DNA. I think we're both, you know, quite conservative financially and I think, as you said, the technology really wasn't there. I mean, after we started with DEC, IBM released the first XT, the first, and it had a 10 megabyte hard disk and everybody was a god. I mean, you know, it's very different today. There was no internet, you know, so even when the internet came many years later, it was on this dial-up modem that you'd take the phone and put it into a thing that looked like earmuffs and it'd crackle away and connect and, you know, get an incredibly slow connection that you could do a little bit of typing through. So the technology wasn't quite there then, but what did happen? We were very early on in the internet. I think we got our first domain name in 1993. No one had even heard of the internet. 
and we became like a research affiliate of Melbourne University to enable us to get a domain name. And we made it ProMed instead of promedicus.com.au because you used to have to type it in every time. So it was a lot easier just typing ProMed. So, yeah, it was a different time, different technology, but clearly um, once the internet became, you know, more ubiquitous, we were in there early and we started what we called ProMedicus.net, which was a secure messaging system that allowed radiologists to send the, the typed reports encrypted so they lodged into a medical record. And, you know, we were a little bit before our time on that one, and that's still a good little business running today. Go forward to 2000, you decide to list on the ASX. You've got a very nice, profitable business, great returns. What made you list? What was the drive behind that, given that the business was producing good returns for the founders and self-funding? Yeah, well, there were a few things. One, it was just pre-tech rec, and we looked at all these other companies around us, and you know things were changing rapidly for them in terms of becoming public. Two, we had a very small staff, but loyal staff, and when you want to reward them with some equity, how much was a share in ProMedicus worth? No one had an idea. And we thought it would put us on the radar a lot more, which it did. Our problem was we were so small. Um, one of the investment banks came to see us and said, you guys are too small, you need a CFO. And we went, CFO? Oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> and went out and then started to you know, build up a bit. And, and thankfully, um, we were able to list, but one of the funny things is literally the weekend we were about to let the markets know we were listing. We'd already had our brokers that were going to do the RPO. They were JB Weir, now Goldman's. We had our board, everything. That that weekend, tech record occurred. I, April 2000. Yeah. All this work and all this money. And, you know, we thought the world had ended. But thankfully, the weather cleared within a few months and, and JB Weir re, you know, recontacted us and said, look, there's an appetite for your stock. And guess what? When you weren't fashionable before, you're very fashionable now. And we said, why's that? And they go, you make money. <laughs> we went, oh, that's a good thing because pre-tech rec, making money was almost a sin, whereas post-tech rec, it was a good thing. And um, look, we got you know the, the company listed. And as you mentioned in your preamble, you know we, we sort of got away to a good start, did a bit of a bump in the road a few years later, but thankfully we're in a better place now. And it gave you time to get a CFO, no doubt. Yeah, well, it was interesting because one of our bigger radiology clients, he was their business manager and, you know, he had spent a lot of time with us. They were the sort of, you know, most well-known group in Victoria at the time. There were no national groups. That came many years later. He was at a bit of a, a loose end and he was, you know, a qualified accountant. We uh, approached him and so he came and joined us and was our CFO for, well, I don't know how many years, but it was quite a number of years after we listed. So we were just fortuitous. But look, we've always been a small unit in terms of staff numbers. We like it that way and it's worked for us. And back then, I think when we moved into our offices in Richmond, there are only eight of us. And we have a, a boardroom or a meeting room and a boardroom. And Anthony said, why are we doing this? We're never going to have a board. But clearly things moved on from there. But you're still in that building, Sam, at in Swan Street in Richmond, that two-storey building. It looks like someone should be living there, not a business being run out of it. Yeah, look, we uh, used to be a bank, one of the old state banks, and we redeveloped it in early 90s, moved in in 1995. It's been a great position. Richmond wasn't as central as it is today. I mean, it's become, you know, Richmond and that whole area has really uh, taken off. So it suits us really well. But and, and that's where we have our corporate offices and that's where we do our development for the Ressel Practice Management product, you know, which was the original product that we still sell and run in Australia. 
but most of our sales and marketing, most of our you know revenue uh, comes out of North America, particularly the US. So you know we run a global organisation, Melbourne, Berlin, and our office in the US is in San Diego, but. Most of our staff work from home, just wherever they happen to be, because our clients literally sprinkled all across, you know, the US. So US now is most probably our biggest division, of becoming our biggest Berlin next and Australia, you know, just a little less than Berlin. So let's go to that international foray when you went with Agfa, and that, I think it was around two thousand four yeah. five that you struck that deal, and then a couple of years later you mm-hmm. stepped aside as CEO. Why did you take that option that you had global ambitions? And the second part of that is how come it didn't all come together? And, and eventually by 2010, you were back in charge and, and resurrecting the business effectively. Yeah, look, a few things happened. And, you know, in around when we listed, we realised that the world was, uh, in radiology anyway, was transitioning from making a diagnosis on, you know, using sheets of X-ray film and hanging them up on a light box to doing them on screen. And I think two things precipitated that. One was the price of silver and X-ray film is just one big bank of silver. And so it became untenable from a financial perspective. And also computers and, and screen resolution were becoming uh, powerful enough and, and, and suitable enough to allow that to happen. So this concept of a PAX, which is basically uh, you know reading uh, diagnostic images on screen, and so the world had transitioned, but there were two camps of informatics. There was us, we, we had all the patient demographics and from the scheduling, we knew what tests they were coming for. And then there was the clinical side, which is the software that manipulates the image and lets a radiologist make a diagnosis. And they weren't really married. So we invented or wrote this middleware and then we were looking for a partner and for various reasons, ANCFA were very dominant, particularly in the hospital sector here in Australia. They had WA Health, they'd run Queensland Health, they had some big implementations in New South Wales and Victoria. And I made a deal with their then head of healthcare for this middleware, and that was largely based in Australia. And he then got seconded by ANCFA to go and become head of sales and marketing for their North American operation. And it was through that that we then started to take the product to the private market in the US, the hospital market they had their own product for. Now, this was on the business management side, the billing, the scheduling. It wasn't the clinical side. And after a few years, we realized there was an impedance mismatch between us as a small company, them as a larger company, and that we needed to find our own clinical component or packs. And we thought, well, let's go out and either do we build or buy. Build would have taken too long. So we're in acquisition mode. And around 2007, David, who who was this person from ACRA, had come back to Australia and I spoken to him about when he comes back, maybe I'll step back a bit. He's had experience in the US. Um, he's had experience with larger companies. We thought it was a good fit and you know, we, we'd done business together and that had been successful. And also our then chairman, Mel Ward, was very involved in the arts. He was the chairman of the Ballet, the Australian Council of the Arts and other business boards. And I thought, you know, I've done reasonably well for myself and maybe time to give something back. And I said to Mel, could you use me on some of these, could you say hand somewhere? And he said, oh, absolutely. So that's why I stepped back. I was still involved. I just wasn't as operational. That must have been hard though, given you'd built the company from ground up to step back and, and let someone else run it. That's a difficult decision to make. It was. It was and it wasn't. Uh, you know, I knew someone else that was in an IT services business that had done it and was successful for them. And I thought, well, you know, I've, I've, I've been on, you know, in the saddle since 83. We're already 2007. 
maybe it was time for someone else to take it to the next level. And look, it was uh, a few things happened in those few years. We were on the acquisition trail. We David did a lot of work. We got very close to one company that was owned by you know it was private owned by four four partners, and it fell over in the last literally last week. And I felt for David because he'd worked tirelessly to get this deal over the line. But then almost by fluke, we found Visage Imaging. It was actually going to be sold to one of its competitors. And it was right in the depths of the GFC. And I think the competitor most probably led it up to the altar, then walked away on purpose, thinking it will fold, no one will buy it. And we just happened to be the right place, right time and did the whole deal. My understanding was Siemens was the competitor, obviously, if that's correct, a much bigger company with with a much bigger balance sheet. Visage had agreed to go with them, but a few things fell your way in the in the following couple of months that saw you back at the altar. Could you run us through what what happened in those in those few months and how Visage came to be part of Prometicus? What had happened? Two guys, two PhD computer scientists out of Zib Institute, which is like the MIT of Europe, is based in Berlin. Malta Westerhof and Detlef Starling. They they started what was the precursor of uh, Visage in Berlin. And they developed the platform and were interested in visualizing large data sets in health. And that was the whole idea of their you know, thesis and the platform. And they sold it to a company called Mercury Computer Systems, which is still around. They're based out of Boston and they uh, were publicly traded and specialized in software for the defense industry. So how did they get a visage? I think they were looking to build a, a, a life sciences portfolio as a, a second string to their boat. And so they set up a whole US organization and the R&D was done in Berlin and they pumped a fair bit of money into it, bought another company that they tried to merge with it. And that was all going along. Now, the Siemens acquisition came well before, a bit before our time when Siemens wanted to buy the Visage component and the people from Mercury or the CEO of then the Visage thought, I can get more for it. And for various reasons, that deal fell by the wayside. But when they couldn't get back more for it, they reapproached and clearly they couldn't come to an agreement between themselves and Siemens. So they kept going and then a number of months later, they were going to sell to a competitor in the imaging space. Not as big as Siemens, but someone that works in advanced visualization and, you know, was one of the bigger players at the time. There were two of them and this was one of them. And we found out about it at the major conference that's on every year. It's at the end of November in Chicago. And literally at drinks, we were introduced to the CEO of Visage. And he said, look, we're locked and loaded. Due diligence is done. You know, we'll, we'll be bought within the next few weeks. And we said, well, look, if the deal falls over, here's our card. And sure enough, next week we get back to Australia and we get a call. And we've been told by their advisors, they they must either sell it or close it down by 1st of February 2009 for various reasons to do with, you know, the GFC and loss-making divisions. And it was a very different world at that stage. And because we had retained earnings and cash, we literally did the whole deal and settled, did the whole thing, due diligence, settled the, the whole shooting match in six weeks and closed the last day of January, 1st of February. And what, what happened to that other suitor? Why, why couldn't they conclude? I'm not sure. I think uh, it wasn't price. Yes, I know what we paid for it and we told the market. I think it was Oz dollars, about five and a half million, which included currency and, and transaction costs. So I don't think it was money, even if they would have paid double for it. I think they felt 
this is a way of getting rid of a competitor. I'm, I'm really not sure, but the fact that they walked away, well, clearly was most probably one of the luckiest things that happened to us. And look, in hindsight, everybody says, boy, that was a deal. But at the time, we thought there's a lot of work to be done here. Um, great technology, but still a lot, you know, we need to put a lot into it. But in simple terms, that five and a half million turned into billions over the next few years. Yes. I think, <laughs> look, just outside the financial side, which again, the market knows, so I won't really comment about that. But yes, if I could find another company like that, I'd put my hands around it and never let it go. But I think there were a few things. We saw the technology, good group of people, you know, it was more to it than just the money. Took a few years to get to a point we were comfortable with because we were losing a lot of money on the investment in the, in the first few years, particularly because of the, the engineering was sensational. The team out of Berlin, very strong. The flip side of that, the US team was, was, you know, not up to par and when I came back in 2010, my first job, I went over to the US and literally blew it up, kept two people and started again. And, you know, I thought better having nothing than what I had and um, built it, you know, person by person. And thankfully, it's worked really well since. And you stepped back into the, the role of CEO, I think around 2010 at Prometicus. What, mm-hmm. what was driving that? Was Did you think there was an opportunity here and a lot of work had to be done in rebuilding Visage and your own business? Well, I think, uh, as I said, uh, David was the CEO at the time we made the acquisition, so around February 2009. And, you know, myself and other board members were instrumental in, you know, behind the scenes and and working out what we needed to do. But operationally, I think uh, there were a few things. We were redeveloping our core risk product and that development was running behind. We were losing money in the US and there was a concern that would this thing just consume so much time and resource that it would kill us. And then other things happened in in background. I think, you know, um, unfortunately, Mel Ward, our chairman, um, developed terminal illness and passed away and and the business just wasn't tracking in in the direction we had hoped. And I think the board basically, and Mel in particular, approached me and said, look, you need to come back. This isn't working. And so I said, look, I'll come back for a few years. I'll do what I can. I can't promise anything, but I think I know what I'm doing. I'm still there and the rest is history. That was a pretty tough time. I know know from a share market point of view, Visage came along in 2009, as you said, just off the back of the GFC. But by about 2011, those concerns around, is the US going to consume our whole business? We've got to put a lot of money and time into it. And I think the shares hit a low. I could be wrong here, but somewhere around 17 cents. Today, we know they're you know, $57, $58 a share. Somewhere around there, yeah. So there was a real low point. And I remember coming to see you as an investor, and I think it was in 2012, and the share price had rallied a little bit to $0.40. Cents, but you had a spring in your step, and you thought you had something. And you had, a, just for me to tell a story, you had enough energy in, in your work because you were five minutes late to that meeting. Obviously, you were busy. And we watched you <laughs> tell the arborist uh, who was dealing with a tree at your little place in Swan Street for about 15 minutes where he should cut and what he should be doing. And it's got to look just right. So, so there was a lot of energy going on at that time and a lot of precision. But obviously, the, the business picked up from that point uh, after some pretty dark days. Yeah, look, it was it was difficult. As I said, we had it was almost like a perfect storm. The redevelopment of our core product in Australia, which had been you know funding all this acquisition, had gone off the rails for various reasons. And one of my first jobs was to try and you know set it in the right direction. And you know, big software projects, it's not simple. You can't just drag and drop one one or two things and it works. Now, then there was also the 
how do we manage the US? And as I said, I came back in October and by February, I literally blown up the team, kept two people who's still with us today and then rebuilt it. But the other thing we did is we changed the, the product and how we marketed it. So the product was really designed as an add-on to a 2D system. And when I looked at it from a business perspective, I thought, you can't make money out of this because the cost of sale is so high and each one's, I don't know, 160, 170,000 US and you might sell one or two seats to an institution. We really need to take over the doctor's desktop. We need to change the paradigm and not only do all the simple 2D stuff, but all the sophisticated stuff that we could, that we could do that others couldn't. And to their credit, the team in Berlin had already been thinking about all of that. And so, you know, there, there was an R&D cycle that had to take place and be funded. And then there was a market perception. Like, who is this company? Who's ever heard of them in the US? Why is it a better mousetrap? And so there are a few years where it was really, really tough. It was also hard rebuilding the US team. But, you know, we did it person by person. And pretty much all everybody that was we've had or hired in the rebuild is still, you know, key uh, key executives in the US team today. So that worked. And of course, they then built out more. You know, one thing that helped us is when we bought Visage, there was a business called Amira. It was based on the same streaming platform, but it was a toolkit for universities and, and research organizations. And we sold that, I think it was in 2012, for about 15 million. So it, it tripled the cases back, triple what we paid for Visage. And that gave us enough financial runway to use that money and, and invest. And what was your first big contract? <laughs> it was big then, but today it would seem small. It was a guy that ran teleradiology, you know, remote reading. And um, the products ideally suited to that. And it was the first one where we started to use the per transaction model. So you charge for what you use, which was also something relatively new to the market. And that sort of got us on the map and proved the technology. And then we won the Veterans Affairs, which we've re- re- Vision 23, which recently renewed for another five years. And then, then we won a, a private group called Swing of Passeri. And then, you know, bit by bit, each deal was getting, you know, materially bigger. And then we had a big reset in the market in May of 2014 when we won Sutter Health, which is one of the biggest, you know, health networks on the West Coast. They're based out of Sacramento, San Francisco, all the way into Palo Alto. And uh, that really reset us in the market because we competed against the good 30 other, 29 other companies. And people thought, who are these Visage people? No one's ever heard of them. Why are they even here to compete? And um, thankfully, we were able to prove them wrong. And that really, you know, gave us a big step up. You know, the rest, as they say, is history. So it's been a busy sort of six, seven years since then. Over that whole journey, Sam, talking to you at investor meetings and the like, you always said, look, we think we have a two or three year gap on any competitors with this compression technology and what we offer. So we sit here today in 2021, as we've outlined what the market's worth or the company's worth. Do you still think you've got that lead time over competitors? And what is the next 10 years? The last 10 years have been incredible. There was a low, then a build, and now you've got a business that's that's a fabulous business. Have you still got that gap on your competitors? And does the next 10 years look just as inviting? Look, we think we do. And we said it was somewhere around... 18 to 24 months. No, you can't know. All you can know are there's certain data points like what you see in the market, 
what clients or prospective clients tell you. So particularly if they go to the RSNA, they're always looking, they go to other trade and they come and say, well, we think you guys have, you know, do this differently. And so you get that feedback and you get it in a competitive environment. But what we don't know is what other developments are, you know, in someone's lab that may come out in years to come. But over the last six years, we don't think there's anyone that has the same technology, even back where we were six years ago. And the reason for that is the, the streaming platform is, is all proprietary. So the two guys from Berlin and their teams and 90, you know, large percentage of teams from acquisition still with us. They developed this new mousetrap and it's fundamentally different in how it handles the data set to the, the standard. It's not like we used the toolkit and got 80% of the way and then, you know, rounded out the other 20%. So someone that wants to copy us will have to work out, A, how we did it because we don't leave a roadmap. B, they're going to have to develop that technology. And it's not just one technology. We talk about the streaming and it's, you know, it's the most explicable of the technologies we use. But it's, you know, an amalgam of, you know, 15 to 18 technologies that, that make up the platform. We then obviously try to ring fence that with IP. So we have a patent portfolio that we're always building on. And then we haven't stood still in, in those years. We're continually developing the product. We've expanded the product portfolio. We're looking at new horizons like AI and how it fits in. So as far as we can tell, we, we, we don't know anybody that has that technology. And even if they did in lab, unlike a lot of other software, it has to go through a FDA regulatory cycle. Now, it's not like a drug that takes years and years and years, but it's not inconsequential. And then once they do that, then they have to, you know, harden it in the field by having it in a small site, then a bigger site and a very big site. And we've already gone through all of that, that, you know, that we did that years ago. So it's possible for someone to try and catch us? Absolutely. But you might be six years ahead rather than the 18 months. Look, again, putting a time frame on it is very difficult, but, you know, we're not standing still. And one of the things that uh, when we bought uh, Visage, it was so refreshing is the view, their view of uh, was so similar to ours, the mentality like in software, there are only two sorts of people, quick and dead, and you don't want to be dead. So <laughs> you've got to keep moving and you've got to increase the pace of movement. And I think we've been able to do that over the years. And it's our number one focus because that's our best form of defense. You built a stunning brand in North America. Is it a global business? Can you do the same in Europe? Can it come back through Asia? Is it a business that can keep on growing as long as you do have that edge for many, many years to come? Absolutely. The technology is ubiquitous. It can work anywhere. So one of our first clients was a two-man radiology practice near Telemarine Airport here in Melbourne. As you know, we do a lot of the top hospitals in the US and it's exactly the same software. There's no difference. So it can work up and down the scale. Unlike the practice management and the billing, which is highly localised because of how governments and payers interact, this can go anywhere. So we do have it in Germany. We can sell it into, you know, the Far East, Middle East. It's purely to do with, you know, bandwidth and, you know, what are those addressable markets? And in the US, not only is it the biggest market by a long shot, it's the most active as well. So that's why we're clearly very focused there, but it's not our sole focus by any means. And what about yourself? It's been a long journey. As we said, 38 years, you you stood off for three years as CEO, but you seem as sharp and as focused as you've ever been. Do you see the next decade as a journey that can keep going? 
clearly, I, you know, as part of all succession planning, which any good business needs to do, you need to build a team around you. And people sometimes ask me, well, what happens if you get hit by a bus? And I think of something a little less macabre, like what happens if I want to go on an extended holiday? Uh, <laughs> I'd like to stay alive. Uh, I think, you know, obviously I've still got petrol in the tank. But my role is changing, as you would expect, as we grow. And I think, you know, building the bench, as they call it, is very important. I think that's a key part of our focus as a company at the moment. And look, there's no plans for me to not continue what I'm doing. But obviously, in time, you know, it would make sense. I'm getting a little long in the tooth, but uh, not too long. You know, I'm going to turn 67 at the end of the year. So still young enough to make a mess, as they say. But look, I think I'll be around for a while. But you know, obviously building the bench and then transitioning my role as, as time, uh, you know, when it makes sense. And have you ever assessed what kind of leader you are? There's been a business that's been built around the world through acquisition, but you've had to deal with people in different locations. There was a moment or two, a few years where things were very tough and you had to rebuild the business. There was a moment early on when you had to start a business and you've kept keeping on through that whole period And as you say, a lot of people have stayed with the business, so they obviously enjoy it. So could you give us a feel for what type of leadership you provided and why it has worked? Well, it's very hard to look in the mirror and (laughs) comment on yourself. But look, I think we are conservative financially. So, you know, we're a safe environment for people to work. And sure, we take calculated risks, but, you know, it's not like feast or famine one day or the next and people not wondering, not worrying, you know, worrying whether they're going to get their next paycheck. But I think it's more than that. I think it's, we had a vision, and I know a lot of people say that, but we did, and it was to build a better mousetrap in an area where we genuinely do good. We aid the clinical process, there's no question, and I think a lot of people are very keen to to do that. So keeping the team together is not just about the business and the market cap and the money, it's also what are we actually doing and what impact does that have and can we see that impact and feel that we're part of it. Being a doctor, that's helped a lot. It's it's really, really very important. And also, I think I have reasonable business skills, and I don't interfere in in certain areas because even if I wanted to, I couldn't. So unlike Anthony or Malta uh, CTO, I couldn't write a line of code to save myself. I've never, I never could, and I never will. So I know the areas where I can have some influence and and rely on these others where I don't. So. You know, I think they're the main things, just sharing, you know, sharing the vision that we're actually doing good and that we've got something that others haven't, I think really helps. And as I said, being a doctor and keeping the team small is the other important thing. We have a small, highly multi-skilled sort of workforce. And, um, you know, I think that that works really well. People feel that they're doing more than one thing. They're not stuck in a rut because that, that clearly is important. Well, it's been a fabulous business from an investor's point of view. Not only has the share price gone from when it listed, I think it was about a dollar. Today, it's it's closer to $60. But as we said, in 2011, it hit 17 cents. But it's also been a business that hasn't required a lot of external capital, which has been a terrific outcome. So we thank you very much, Sam, for your time today. We wish you all the best over the next decade. And here's to another 30,000%. Thanks very much. (laughs) Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on.